Hello and welcome to the Adult Children's Voices Across America Speakers Meeting. If you would like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org and click on Online Meetings, and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. I'm happy to welcome our speaker, Angela B. from St. Petersburg, Florida. Hi, thank you so much. I am Angela, and I am a very, very grateful adult child. I um, live in St. Petersburg, Florida now. Uh, I grew up in Tennessee and spent some time out in Phoenix, Arizona. I uh, was born to um, a father whose father was not only an alcoholic, but he was a gambler and a womanizer. And he was married to my grandmother, who uh, was very much a spiritual addict. She was a religious zealot and uh, was very much addicted to her religious beliefs. And uh, it was very fear-based in that home. My mom was born to a rageaholic and a codependent wife. And I um, came into this home with uh, such a blended family. I didn't realize it at the time, of course, being a child, I thought it was all normal. As a matter of fact, for most of my life, I thought I was growing up in a family that was very much like any that I would watch on the uh, afternoon TV shows when I would get home from school, like Leave it to Beaver and other shows like that. Uh, I thought I had the perfect normal family growing up. And um, it was very interesting to me when the time came for me to do my step work, as I looked back uh, through this veil of denial that I had had after that was removed to kind of look at things through the eyes of truth. And I'll get to that a little later. But after doing some of that step work and being able to kind of reevaluate my truth about my past, um, what I'd like to do now is kind of share the first part of my life with you and then kind of walk you through how I came to uh, the program and then the changes that's made in my life today. So in 1964, I was um, welcomed into the world while my mother was at this little medical clinic and my uh, father was out working in the field. He was a nurseryman by trade and he wasn't there when I was born, but I guess he arrived shortly after. My mom was a really insecure person, and she um, has told me stories of how when I would cry, she thought that it meant she was a bad mother. And so every time I would cry, she would put a bottle in my mouth so that she wouldn't have to hear me crying because she thought that that was her way to nurture and soothe me. And that pattern continued throughout my life as my mom found her place of peace and her place of nurturing by being able to uh, provide meals for us. So my mom was always in the kitchen, always cooking, always heaping mounds of starches and biscuits and gravy and food onto plates and platters and bowls and taking a lot of pride when we would come back for seconds. So my love of food, I guess, began before I even knew it with the bottle in my mouth and it just continued throughout the years. Somewhere around the age of three years old, my mom and I were uh, with my aunt 
and my cousin, and we were shopping in a large department store. And I remember uh, my mom telling this story. Actually, it kind of became the family joke that um, I was in the front part of the cart and I would I kept asking my mom questions. I was always a very inquisitive child and I loved to learn. I always wanted to know more. And I was asking my mom these different questions. I don't even really know what they were about, but my mom was had a very short fuse and she was a very nervous person. As a matter of fact, she had been taking Valium for quite some time, um, which I later learned how to help dispense to her. Anyway, my mom was very nervous and anxious and I continued to ask these questions. And um, my mom screamed out loud in the store and told me to, to shut up and she slapped me really hard across the face, so hard that blood began to um, go everywhere. And my mom immediately became really embarrassed that someone would see what had happened. And so she rushed me to the bathroom to clean me up. Um, for years, my mom would use that, um, that story as a way to assert some power over me by reminding me, even up until the last couple of years ago, um, you better not say or do that because if you do, you know I can slap you and make your nose bleed. My dad was um, an alcoholic, but I didn't know it at the time. Actually, we never had alcohol in the home that I'm aware of, but um, he worked a lot. He was also a workaholic and he was gone a lot. He was a professional musician and he traveled and played a lot on the, on the weekends and the evenings and uh, was busy with his nursery business through the week. Uh, so he, I don't remember him being home a lot, but I do remember that when he was there, I liked that a great deal. Uh, somewhere around the age of seven, I can remember uh, it being very important to my family that I be a proficient athlete. Uh, I came from a long line of basketball players and softball players and people who are uh, very agile and talented on the court and the field. And um, while it didn't appeal to me, I also remember from that very tender age of seven how important it was for me to win their approval. So I distinctly remember uh, going out onto the ball field with my uncle being one of our coaches and um, screaming at me using my name. Uh, often. In a way, it almost felt like a curse word to me. Um, they would use a term of what they thought was endearment. They called me Angie, but they would say it with a really harsh tone. And he would scream across the field and, and tell me what I was doing wrong and how to make it right. And quite frankly, I was quite a fumble fingers. I couldn't seem to get the right motions in there. And I was terrified that the ball was going to hit me or uh, that I wasn't going to please them. And the more I thought about pleasing them and doing it right, the more nervous I became and the worse I was, I was able to play. And I never had fun at sports because it was always about performing for me at something that I wasn't very good at. My uncle Bernie was a really angry guy. And so was another one of my uncles. Um, I had a, a time when I was younger, when I was visiting my cousins 
And um, my uncle became really enraged that I was visiting. And I remember him screaming at me to get the hell out of his house and as he kicked the television across the room. And I remember being really terrified because I thought, well, I remember distinctly thinking, if he could do that to a television, what could he do to me? So my family took a vacation when I was seven. We came to Florida. And uh, every year we would come to Fort Myers to visit some relatives. And on this particular year, I was seven. My sister was three. And we were staying at a cabin on the beach, which was far removed from other people. And I distinctly um, remember we had had a really good time. Um, it was the first year that we had ever been to Disney World. It had just opened that year, and it was a really exciting time for us as kids. But we were staying in this cabin on the beach, and um, something happened, and my sister got really sick. Her fever shot up very abruptly, and she um, was was very, very sick. And my mom had the first of many to follow um, what she called nervous breakdowns. Um, she picked up my sister and ran outside with her and started running up and down the beach screaming, my baby is dying, somebody help me, somebody help me. Um, I remember my, my dad went to the front office to this little cabin and he called for some help and they, um, they took my sister to the hospital and left me with this innkeeper person that I didn't know until um, my, my aunt and uncle could arrive a few hours later to pick me up so that I could stay with them for the week. I remember feeling very abandoned, very like, uh, I don't remember seeing my mom or my dad or my sister for the rest of that week. And it was the first time I had ever spent uh, a night away from my family. My parents were very overprotective when I was young. So I had this huge need to people please as a small child um, that, that kind of made me want to be who people thought I should be. I kind of developed into being what I guess would be considered as like a chameleon. Um, I started trying to be what I thought people wanted me to be. And that kind of created some anxiety for me because I was a little bit afraid about um, not knowing what people wanted and letting people down. So I tried really hard to be what I thought people wanted me to be. This carried over too into um, early religious experiences that I had as a kid where I experienced some spiritual abuse, um, very legalistic, dogmatic rules and regulations about what girls and women could and could not do and um, various things. And so I was very talented and loved music a great deal. And um, in this particular religious setting, there were no musical instruments allowed and women weren't allowed to speak. And um, I remember having this real desire to, to want to serve in some way. And I was told very quickly that um, that wouldn't be possible because of my gender. And um, I just remember from a really early age, whether it be at home with my mom or my dad or with my uncles or at this religious institution, that there was just something really wrong with me, that I was very defective. And I had a great deal of shame about that. Um, I remember thinking that um, what was the point of trying so hard if I was never going to measure up? 
um, from the earliest age of even 12 years old, one of the ways that the ACA traits really showed up for me was this, this sense, this fear that I was never going to be able to be good enough, that I had to strive really hard to please people, uh, especially authority figures. And that um, if I didn't, that that would mean that something was terribly, terribly wrong with me and that I hadn't tried hard enough. So I developed a sense of perfectionism that went along with that, that um, has been a, a pretty difficult thing for me over the years, uh, going from uh, all or nothing. If, if I can't, if it can't be perfect, I'm not going to do it at all. Another thing that I learned in my family of origin was this idea of codependence. Actually, I think I learned it not just from my family of origin, but from the community that I grew up in, in rural Tennessee. Um, it seems really common for at least women to take on the role of being codependent to be enablers, uh, to make sure you're keeping the family secrets and making sure that um, you're meeting the needs of people, whether they ask you to or not, because that shows that you're a good, strong person. Um, this showed up a lot in my home where my mom um, was very nervous and anxious and often would ask me to get her one of her nerve pills. Um, even as a child, I knew the difference uh, in the color, whether she would want a blue one or a yellow one. Um, and I can remember kind of taking on the caretaker role in that way with my mom. I um, grew up feeling very, very inadequate in many ways, but also having very few boundaries. I didn't even really know what a boundary was as a kid. I, it was everything about me was out there. I remember just saying things and net looking back, I can remember sometimes people giving me funny looks about things I would say or do. Um, and now I can recognize that um, boundaries weren't modeled in our home or in our family. Uh, you could explode, you could scream, you could yell, you could hide out, you could sleep for days. And that was obviously, or apparently it seemed to me, supposed to be like normal behavior. Um, my mom was often asleep in the afternoons after school. Uh, she would often sleep for several hours after that because um, she was always nervous and breaking out in hives. So she needed a retreat. I do remember feeling very alone and feeling like I had to entertain myself a lot. Uh, somewhere in high school, I fell in love and um, had this, this boyfriend that um, we talked about what our lives would be like. And it was really my first experience of like feeling really accepted by someone. Um, I remember that um, quickly becoming kind of enmeshed with this person. And as we continued to grow in our relationship together, um, I became more and more attached to him so that my junior year, um, when, when he broke up with me, um, this incredible feeling of abandonment resurfaced that I remember having so many times throughout childhood. And um, I got really, really depressed and started um, no. um, abstaining from eating and uh, drinking very much. I started losing a lot of weight based on the depression that I was having. And um, at some point, an eating disorder developed. I already had a lot of body image issues, some, um, some shame about who I was. I didn't like wearing shorts. I didn't like 
going out into public and things that would be very revealing of my body. So I was always trying to cover up wearing really loose fitting clothing. Um, but this eating disorder thing began because of, I think, my need to approve, uh, have the approval of people and my fear of abandonment and my need to control something in this chaotic home. And so I continued abstaining from food. And before long, um, I started getting comments about my body that I had never received before. Uh, people would tell me, wow, you look great. Gosh, you're so beautiful. What are you doing? Wow, th this losing weight thing, you really need to keep this up. This is awesome. And um, it became this real spiral for me, uh, this, this dance between when I should or shouldn't eat or what I should or shouldn't eat. And um, it's another way that I think the ACA traits affected my life. Uh, shortly after I developed an eating disorder, um, my dad decided he left us. He moved out and started seeing someone else. And my mom had another one of her nervous breakdown episodes, which is where full caretaker mode came in for me. Um, and I remembered taking my mom to um, an emergency hospital in Nashville so that she could get treatment for this depression because she was having thoughts of taking her life. And I felt so responsible for her. Um, I really kind of, that's really when the parental role really kicked in for me was in high school. I could tell you a lot more things about my childhood, but what I think is really important now is for me to kind of transition a little bit into how my ACA bottom occurred. Um, my husband, um, who is an incredible human being uh, who have been with now for 12 years. And I host my mom to visit us from time to time. My mom's still with us. And um, I'm one of the rare ACA people, I guess, who get to kind of still engage with my mom uh, from time to time as I'm working my recovery. But anyway, before ACA, um, my mom was visiting us in the spring of 2019. and um, my husband had heard her mention a couple of these times when she would say something to me about, you know, if you do that, I'm going to, I can slap you and make your nose bleed. And of course, I always just laugh at it. And my mom would laugh at it. And I didn't really think that much about it. And one day he said to me, do you really think that that's funny? Like that was your mom. And like, you were a little child. Um, how do you feel about that? And it just struck me as odd, like nobody had ever asked me that question before. I hadn't really taken the time to think, like, how do I really feel about being a little child and having my mom engage with me in that way? So I kind of thought about it a little bit, but I put it on a shelf. And uh, the following week, I worked at a rehab at the time. And so I was working with the clients on some different resources they could use in their own recovery. And I stumbled across some ACA materials. And um, I read the ACA um, Serenity Prayer. And boy, it just spoke to me. I thought, wow, this is so much better than the other one. Why, why, does, why don't we just use this everywhere? And, um, and then I stumbled across the traits. As a matter of fact, I have them here. I uh, 
boy, the very first trait just kind of slapped me in the face. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, the laundry list. We became isolated and afraid of people and authority figures. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, like I can relate to this. We became approval seekers and lost our identity in the process. Wow, that's me. We are frightened by angry people and any personal criticism. Boy, I do this, you know, like I was thinking, I, I sometimes I even like get that into fight, flight or freeze mode. I can dissociate when somebody's really, really angry or they raise their voice or I hear a loud noise. We either become alcoholics, marry them or both. Wow, I had done that three times. So, huh, maybe this fits. We live life from the viewpoint of victims and we're attracted by that weakness in our love and friendship relationships. As I went down the list, it was just like somebody was reading my life story and I was really kind of shocked by that. So I remember sharing it with the clients and I went on about my day and just so happens that that weekend in July, I was going to Tennessee to be with my family for my sister's birthday. We were at a restaurant and everyone was there. And um, my mom sat directly across from me and we were joking about something. And she was asking me a question about why she hadn't been invited to some event or other. And I just said, Mom, it, it wasn't my choice. And she said, don't get smart with me or I'll slap you and make your nose bleed. Sorry, I'm getting a little choked up. Um, and in that moment, something like really, really hit me. Um, wow, those that's me. this is me. I've got to do something about this. And in that moment, it was, it was July 13th, 2019. I remember it so plainly. Uh, I said to myself, as soon as I get back to St. Pete, I'm going to find an ACA meeting. I've got to go. I've, I've got to do this. Because the emotional overwhelm was just so significant in that moment. And the dots started connecting for me. And I realized that this, this fight, flight, this freeze, this thing that happens when that happens, it's like, Lots of other times when it happens, and maybe there's an answer. Maybe I don't have to live like this anymore. So we came, flew back home the next day, and um, I immediately went on the World Organization website and looked through the list, and I found the meetings. And um, there's a wonderful meeting on Saturday mornings over at the Alano Club here at St. Pete Beach, and it's like a five-minute drive for me. And I thought, well, what have I got to lose? You know, I'll go check this stuff out and I'll see. And like, if it fits for me, great. And if not, you know, no, no harm, no foul. Um, something about it, like I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Like I made this commitment in my head. I'm going to go to this meeting and I'm going to see what this is about. Tuesday, I thought about it. Wednesday, I thought about it. Thursday, I thought about it. Like it was like pounding for me like this this thing, I'm gonna do this I got up Saturday morning I got myself together and I went to the meeting really and truly not knowing tons about what to expect I mean I had done the steps in CODA before and I had been in some EDA meetings but but this this seems different to me for some reason so I walked in the door and this wonderful gentleman approaches me and introduces himself and he tells me he's so glad that I'm here and then someone else 
comes up to me after the meeting and again approaches me and, and says things. But and those were great moments for me. But sitting in a meeting and hearing the laundry list being read and hearing the promises, the solution. Um, I had this sense in my head that it just kind of took me back to childhood to those moments of feeling so defeated and so broken and so defective that maybe there's hope for me. Like maybe all the work I've done in therapy and all these other things for years haven't been enough. Like maybe this is a place for me. And so then after the litany of readings, you know, had kind of commenced and someone said uh, what the topic would be for the day. And these beautiful, amazing, wonderful people around the room began to share their truth and their experiences and their recovery. I felt like I was like home, like, oh, my God, this is my tribe. Like, these are the people that I've been searching for. I'm not defective and I'm, I'm not like that different. And I'm like home. And um, if these people can find what they need here, so can I. Like it was just this really, really powerful thing. Um, I remember getting in my car and driving home and I just couldn't wait to tell my husband, oh my gosh, let me tell you about this. And um, I shared with him some of the information I had heard not from the shares of the people, but just from the materials and the way that I felt and how encouraged I was. And, um, oh, my goodness, every Saturday, I couldn't wait for Saturday to come. Saturday after Saturday, I had to be at this meeting. Um, I took the six meeting thing very seriously. I don't know now how many I'm at, but it's a lot more than that. But um, things began to shift. And I wanted to sign up for a step group and I wanted a sponsor and I, I wanted what everybody in the room was seeking and what some people already had. And um, I, I asked a beautiful fellow traveler if she would be my sponsor. And, and she said, yes, I started meeting with her every week and um, I joined a step group and I took it so seriously. And a group of us would meet every Sunday night. I drove 40 minutes every Sunday um, to go to the step group and as we would go through the steps and we would share our past boy that fourth step is painful brutal beautiful healing step where we do this fearless inventory and we uncover our past and the denial is shaken and Many of the things that I've shared with you already from my childhood were things that were kind of buried or laughed at or minimized. And in doing that fourth step, being able to look at the truth of my life and what it meant to me and how it affected me and the negative messages that it gave me was so liberating. It um, was a, a source of freedom and hope that um, I've only experienced one other time in my life. And um, that was at my first spiritual awakening when I found the God of my understanding. Um, and this one to me was just as powerful, just as significant, this spiritual awakening of my own self. 
Um, this book is an incredible tool for me. I, um, I cherish it. I love it. There's a, um, a reading here that I'd love to share with you that really, really gives me some hope. It, it says, we loved our parents naturally, but our parents could not accept our gift. They did not love themselves. They could not recognize what we were trying to give them. As children, we were confused by our parents' rejection. We quickly learned to retract our love and to bury it deep inside. We created a false self who chased people and things so we could feel in control, but never whole. We thought we had buried our love permanently, but it is there. No matter what we have done in the false self, our love is there. This means we can love others. This means we can be a friend. And by loving ourselves, we see there is more love in the world than we realized. There is still much dependency and addiction, but there is love and we can see it. We recognize it because it is in us. By recognizing love, our false self dissolves. We realize we are not our addictions. We are not drugs or food or spending or gambling or sex or compulsions. We are love. See, I know that like as a recovering ACA, I've had to make some amends, mostly to myself for the ways I've judged myself harshly and the ways I haven't shown myself love in the past. My recovery in ACA helps me to become my own loving parent, a person who cherishes and treasures the gift of life that is in me. My ACA recovery gives me the opportunity to own the mistakes I've made in a loving way that's not judgmental, but that's just truth giving and, and life bearing. I have uh, an adult son who struggles with addiction. And I would be lying if I said that my own ACA-ness didn't contribute in some way to that in his earlier years. But my ACA recovery also lets me know that like being gentle with myself and loving with myself and kind with myself and knowing that like, you know what? Maybe I wasn't, maybe I was doing the best I could just like my parents did. I can forgive myself and love myself and I can, I can move forward without holding grudges or feeling sad or angry. I can be kind to myself and know that I'm the person that I'm supposed to be and I'm becoming even more the person that I want to be. The, um, the steps of ACA have totally changed my life. Uh, the ability to admit that I was powerless over the effects of alcoholism. Um, now when I'm in a dysfunctional relationship at work or with a family member, I can use the steps, I can use my recovery to remind myself that I am powerless over the effects of other people's dysfunction. 
It's not my job to change people. It's not my job to challenge people. It's not my job to get angry and, and indignant and try to make people be something that I want them to be. In recovery, my job is to love me. In recovery, my job is to establish healthy boundaries, to love myself enough to say no, to, to be able to just accept who other people are and to accept who I am. I think my favorite, um, my favorite thing about recovery are the promises that we have in ACA. We will discover our real identities by loving and accepting ourselves. Um, I guess for me in recovery, what this means to me is that I have come as my denial has faded. I have come to an understanding that the person I thought I was, the person I thought I was supposed to be, was really my false self. And I wasn't living an authentic life, um, being true to who I am, who I'm called to be, and who's my, who's my best self, not just for me, but for my husband and my friends and, and anybody who wants to do life with me to be a fellow traveler. But my real identity comes out when I love and accept myself. The other promise here that's really come true for me is that my self-esteem has increased as I give myself approval on a daily basis. My history of self-loathing and bashing myself and judging myself and holding myself to the standards of a million other people other than myself was so painful. And now I get to live a life where I know that I know my own truth, I know my own worth, and I know my own value. And I don't believe that I'm more valuable than anybody else. But damn it, I don't believe anybody else is more valuable than me. And that is probably the biggest gift that ACA has given me. I want to thank you guys for letting me share tonight. This is a big deal for me. I've never shared my story before, and um, I am honored at the opportunity to do so. Um, and um, I think that the topic for tonight um, would be the topic of self-love, because self-love is, um, like I said a minute ago, the best gift I have received from this program, something that I never even really thought I was supposed to do that has drastically changed not only how much I can now love others authentically, but how much I really respect and honor myself. Thank you guys for letting me share. Thank you, Angela. 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 Thank you,